I don't know if the people realize this. It's very silent on the other end of the phone. Like I think because everybody like shushing everybody or or something. And then I've got people looking at me in the draft room. So you're a little this it's a very you know, it's not it's not as, uh, you know, it's, it's a little different than people think. But I got to go back after and watch some of their videos on Instagram. So Brian Asimov, who's, you know, from the same place that I am and watching the emotion and the tears and the family. And that's when it really hits you home. Um, how incredible a moment that must be for them and, and, and so proud and, and honestly their journey is just starting and we're, we're excited to get back to work i'm going with the flow and thank you for all right, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Go With The Flow. I'm your host, Falaran Okulaja. I have another very, very special guest with me today, Kwesi Adolfo Mensa. Welcome to the show, Kwesi. Thanks, Florin, man. Uh, it's, uh, it's great to be here. Thanks for uh, reaching out to me. Uh, yeah, uh, it's great to be here. I think you have a great uh, podcast, and, uh, and I see so much connection with you and, and kind of my story that I was happy to, to, to join you. Of course. Thank you so much. And I just want to give a quick background for everyone listening. So Kwesi graduated from Princeton in 2003 with a degree in economics before becoming a portfolio manager and commodities trader on Wall Street. He received his master's degree from Stanford in 2013 before beginning work for the San Francisco 49ers in football research and development. He was with the 49ers for seven years before then becoming the Browns vice president of football operations in 2020. And most recently, he was hired as the Minnesota Vikings uh, general manager in January of 2022. So just a quick little background for everyone listening. And what you just mentioned is actually the first place that I wanted to start with, which was the similarities with our background. So doing my research, I saw that your family immigrated from Ghana nine years before, or 13 years, 12 years before you were born. Sorry. My family moved from Nigeria nine years after I was born. So there's a little bit of a similarity there. And my first question for you is, so when I moved from Nigeria, I had a little bit, not, I don't want to say an identity crisis, but it was, I was stuck in between being Nigerian and being American and just trying to figure out who I was as a person. And uh, due to your background, would you say that you had any sort of similar, not a, an identity struggle, but just a process of trying to figure out who you were as a person? No, that's a great way. It's, it's so funny. Uh, I, I experienced that as well, a little bit different than you, just because you had grown up there. So for me, you know, first, first and foremost, though, I had such a strong sense of self instilled in me from my parents. Uh, you know, I can talk at length about how grateful I am to my parents and all they've, they've, they've done for me. But, you know, so in, in the, on the playground or whatever, you know, I'm different. You know, I have a great group of childhood friends. We're still close to this day. They'll probably listen to this podcast and, you know, I have so much love for them, you know, on the field, on the football field and the soccer field. I was the same. I was just their friend. But, you know, at times, you know, I have a different name. I look a little different. The spices might smell a little different when they come to my house. And so you're not in a binary sense. You're not just like them. But then when I get off the plane to Accra and go see my family, I'm not like them either. Right. I talk differently than them. I, I sound you know, I, I don't wear the same clothes. You know, they tease me for being American. So you live in this world where you're you know, you're never zero or one. Right. You never feel like you're, you know, truly belonging to either group. And and honestly, that just takes time to evolve and grow from, you know, I think for me, it was just kind of leaving that binary mindset and really just appro approaching it like, hey, that duality, it's cool, you know, like, yeah, I'm a little different. Um, but, you know, I've just really eventually got to a point where I embraced, but now I do see it similarly that there was a little dynamic where you don't necessarily feel like completely belonging to, to any true group. 
Yeah, exactly. And I relate to that on so many levels. And for me, it wasn't until at the sophomore year of high school for me was a big year when I finally grew into who I was as a person and I was able to realize that I don't necessarily need to fit in perfectly with either group. Who I am is exactly enough for me. Was there a particular stage in your life where that confidence was really able to come through and you were like, okay, I don't really care what anyone else is saying. I know who I am as a person. I mean, that's pretty wise for sophomore in high school. man. <laughs> I mean, I, I think uh, the world needs to really come to that conclusion. Uh, but yeah, it's a slow process, a general maturation. I think, you know, I think the baseline comes from my family. And again, just my dad, my mom, my brother, sister, cousins, grandma, aunties, just feeling a part of something, feeling good about, yeah, I'm different, but I, I'm also a part of this great thing that, you know, I didn't choose, but it's, it's just an incredible thing to be a part of, you know, the, the family functions with the high life plan and the fufu eating and the loud arguments about Ghana politics that I, you know, I still don't understand, but you, know, you appreciate more as you grow that that's just, you know, that's my story. That's, that's the people I grew up with, but I'm just so proud that, you know, to be, to be from that, um, you know, being around at Princeton and, and not just Princeton, but people before that, um, being open-minded and appreciating, you know, that first person who, who you introduce, like, Quasi, that's a cool name, you know, or, or oh, I've always wanted to try Jalal or, or something. It just, yeah, those small things really do matter and they give you an appreciation that, hey, the, the world sees me and appreciates me. Uh, you know, they're, you know, just as I got older, to your point, you just sit and think a lot of, you know, free think, you just sit in a room and think, and you think the very basic part of like our existence is nobody chooses their nature or nurture. Nobody, right? And so yeah. there's this, I, I'm dating myself here, but Martin this is a show that I, I watched growing up. I don't know if you you know that show, but I do. I do indeed. There's this funny <laughs> part where they're trying to get the police to come over to their house and the police officer is basically trying to get them to prove that they're white. So they take this quiz and it's like, do you like apple pie or something like that? And it's all these questions they're asking or whatever to prove something. And it's like, I always think of that and think about like this waiting room of like people about to enter the world and you got to take this quiz. And if you, if you don't like spicy food, you can't be African or something like that, yeah. you know, <laughs> and, but nobody chooses this thing. Right. So we, we come out to this circumstance and you just got, you all got to just try and be the best version of yourself that you can be that you were, you were given and appreciate that. And in doing so for myself, I appreciate that in another person like you. And I know that if I came out a Nigerian named Falorin, that that would be dope too. And so, you know, that's kind of how I've just kind of gotten to this place where I'm just so comfortable in myself and confident in who I am. Gotcha. And I have to ask the most controversial question amongst Ghanaians and Nigerians. <laughs> when it comes to jollof rice, who's, who's you think is better? Genuinely. You don't have to say Ghana just because you're from Ghana. <laughs> no, you know, <laughs> hey, I mean, man, I could go off on that. So I grew up with my best friend growing up is Nigerian. So I grew up with, you know, like a, another mom and you know, they're actually my mom and her are both coming out to our first preseason game, which will be so much love. But you know, I grew up eating both. They're both great. Obviously, I'm going to say my mom. I'm going to say uh, jollof rice, Ghanaian jollof rice. But like, you know, I read this great book last summer, uh, The Four Loves by C.S. Lewis. And he talks about the love somebody has for this, where they're from. And it's just like, at that point, when you ask me that question, I'm thinking about my mom. I'm thinking about the smells coming from the kitchen and the, 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 those days with my brother and sister. So if you ask me what's my favorite, I'm talking about that. It's not even about the taste in a sense, yeah. it's about those memories. And, and so, yeah, that for me, that's, that, that's why I'm going to say that. But like, I've also heard that Ghanaians and Nigerians should stop arguing because Senegal has the best. Have you heard that? <laughs> I've, like, ne I've never, I've never I, heard that. Somebody told me that and I was just kind of just like, yeah, maybe. So we'll see. What it, we'll see.
<laughs> and so you touched a little bit on your time at Princeton, but could you just go into a little bit more detail about how exactly you found the transition and how your four-year experience was at Princeton? Beautiful. Uh, that's the the first word that comes to mind. Beautiful love, family. Um, you know, when I when I got there, you know, it was one of those things where you get in and it's a great school and you have to go. You know, it's just the opportunities are too great. But I'll be honest, I, I thought it was going to be tough for me to fit in, you know, just based on stereotypes that I didn't really weren't, weren't, weren't didn't true to be uh, end up being you know founded. But, um, you know, you get there and people are from different places, different backgrounds, different socioeconomic levels. But honestly, from the classroom to the tap room, I always felt comfortable. I always felt like I was part of the family such a small close-knit community. You know, we don't live off campus. I shared a yeah. bunk bed with somebody as a 21 year old. That's probably too late to share a bunk bed with somebody, but you know, I did that. And there's just such a close-knit uh, bond that I have with so many people there. And you're talking family. You know, I have a group of college roommates that I entered with as freshmen. We're still extremely close. We do a trip every year. We uh, typically go to Scottsdale. We, we, we climb this mountain called Camelback. And I promise you on that mountain, I learn. I grow, I recharge, and it's almost like I become that 17-year-old that entered, and then I come back into the world, and I'm so ready to go, and, you know, and I could tell countless other groups of friends of mine that I've, you know, text groups with and all that, we, we travel each other, we see each other, we support each other. Um, I, I can't, it's so fortunate just because I, I, I almost don't like talking about it because I'm so blessed uh, to have had that experience, um, and obviously, there's so much luck and in, in element that goes into obviously, I worked hard as a high school student, there's a lot of people who don't get the opportunity to go to a school like that. And I'm forever grateful, you know, and uh, when I left those Fritz, those Fritz Randolph gates, you know, you can't walk in the whatever you can't walk out. When I walked out for the first time, I had no regrets, man. You know, we did it, you know, we lived, we, we experienced things. And I'm not one of those people who wants to go back to college because I left it all in the field. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I want to go back and, you know, so I could be in the same place with so many beautiful people that I love so dearly. But, uh, you know, I had such a great time there. And, you know, obviously you always wish you could do a little bit better. I wish I could have experienced a little bit more culture. Wish I could have met to a few more office hours and talked to some of the great professors that we have access to. Uh, but for the most part, man, it just it's such an amazing experience I had there and just eternally grateful. Yeah. And it, even as someone who just graduated around two months ago at this point I was still able to feel that's also same sense of like appreciation for the place because I've already been able to tell that I've met some friends there that I'm going to have for the rest of my life so many experiences that I'm going to talk about forever and tell my kids about and although COVID tried to ruin the middle of our, the middle of our experience we were still able to come back this past school year and really just make the most out of it so yeah it's just amazing how one place whether not just Princeton specifically but whatever school you go to is able to just have that that same sort of effect on you incredibly man and honestly I you know I probably left out the impact that it's had on my life just not just the, the the people aspect of it, but what it trained me for. You know, you you sit in a room and you know that 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 mountain of work start, starts to pile up sometimes there. And you know, those days where your eyes get wide and you know, I still think back to like when I was writing my thesis and I was like, I gotta write a th you know, like just something like that. And that yeah. that feeling that in your stomach when you first get a task, but there's that sense of you that like, okay, I'm gonna get through this. And I get that every day here. Trust me, there's days where I'm just like. Am I going to be equal to this task? But, you know, as a 17 year old, as an 18 year old, as a 19 year old self, I proved that I could. And that all started at Princeton. And, and again, forever grateful for that.
Yeah, for sure. And so then coming out of Princeton, um, like I mentioned beportfolio you went to Wall Street, you spent some time as a portfolio manager and commodities trader. Was that all, why was that the path that you decided to go on right out of Princeton and were there any other interests at the time but you just ended up going down that route? Yeah, that was it. I was so fortunate. I you know I was an economics major. I uh, loved had a love for, you know, quantitative uh things and I had an interest in the stock market. Um so I didn't know what that really meant. You know, you show up and I don't know, people wear a briefcase is that what you're supposed to do with the, you know, an economics or a business type degree. Uh and you know, just being around friends and asking what people did after college, they, a lot of them talked about loving Wall Street. And so I was fortunate enough to get an internship after my junior year of college. I interned at Morgan Stanley. Uh, fellow Princeton alum actually run, ran the commodities group that I worked for, John Shapiro, a great, a great person, a great mentor to me um, at the time. And so I went there to work and it's like, you know, I, as an intern on a trading desk, you can't do very much, right? You're not, you're not really <laughs> trusted with making a lot of money or anything like that. And I would help them in Excel or whatever. But I remember sitting down between our two gold traders, uh, you know, one of them still a cl- close friend of mine to this day. And it was the same feeling I got on the first date with my now wife. You know, it's just like some somatic sense in your body, just like I'm, I'm, I'm in the right place. This is my future. And I can't really explain to you why that is, uh, to be honest. Uh, it was just like I was home. Uh, just the energy, uh, the people, the communication going on, the mental challenge. Uh, it was just like the perfect job for me. Um, you know, when I was leaving to go back to grad school, you know, I was asking my sister for advice. And she was telling me, she's like, I don't know if anything else will be able to make you as happy as that life, because I could tell you were just challenged every day in a different way. And for somebody like you, that's just something you need. Um, and you know, again, forever grateful for the experiences I had there, the people I met there. It's, it's just you know, so grateful. Yeah, for sure. And so in doing this alumni series, one of the most, the, one of the things that I'm always most curious about with all the people who have spent many years in the professional world is when they do decide to make these changes from whether it's leaving a certain job to go to another one or deciding to go back to school, the, the, just these different moments where it's like, they tend to, they tend to be very pivotal because again it's going to chart the path that you're going to go on for the next certain amount of years so you describe how much you loved the job and how you felt like it was right for you why did you then decide that you needed to go back to grad school and I'll, i'm i'm guessing you get accepted to stanford it's not a hard decision but why even apply in the first place if you were so happy doing what you were doing it's a tough one I, you know i get asked that question all the time and i, I think i give varying answers cuz i don't know again i talk about that somatic sense it was just something you know there, and you'll learn this. Uh, you you work on Wall Street. They call them the golden handcuffs, where you get you get far enough in your career where you know you, you get accustomed to a certain lifestyle, and it's hard to really pivot. And so, I was just nervous that you know if I ever wanted to pivot, I, I needed to do it before a certain point. Um, you know, I've always been somebody who was into a lot of different things, and not not to be uh, more so morbid, but think about your end of your life. But what do you want your tombstone to read? What do you want it to say about you? I wanted to say a lot of different things that this dude was passionate and, and he was interested in a lot of different things and Wall Street and trading was one of them. But I also knew that that passion for decision making I could do elsewhere. Right. I, I could do that in my I could do that in my personal life. I could do that in my personal account or whatever. Um, so I just knew that there was something else more for me of a passion for education and economics. And it just felt like the right thing. Maybe I was going to go back and be a teacher and impact lives that way. Uh, I, I can't tell you that I know specifically what what the one reason was. You know, people joke 
I played in this great flag football team in New York City when I was there. And one of the other receivers I was receiving with him, I told him I'm going to leave by 29. I was like, I need you to bet me on this so that I actually stick to it. Uh, and, you know, ultimately, again, fortune had it that we were my we were we were starting the hedge fund and we had like six, seven months off. And so I had time to travel, study for the, you know, the, the, the test, I wrote the essays. I don't know if that that break doesn't happen, whether I actually go through with it. And to your point, you get into Stanford and it's like, my boss called me and it's obviously like, are you really going to do this? <laughs> and I, was like, I mean, you know, I don't know that I, I, I have this just sense and world that things are meant to be and they're supposed to happen. And, you know, doors are opened or closed. Obviously you got to work for them to keep those doors open. But I think when they open and present themselves, you're supposed to listen. Yeah. And so moving on to your transition to the NFL, jumping ahead a few years now, could you just tell the general story of how you even just landed that job with the 49ers to start with? Because, again, pretty much a 180 from being at Stanford to then yeah. going to work in professional football. Yeah, I mean, I would say yet somewhat. But if you look, if you dig deeper, it's it's just all decision making under uncertainty. Right. Wall trading. Same thing. Sure. Uh, economics. You know, you're building frameworks for how people make decisions. Um, you're building, you know, in a macro sense or micro sense, and then football is no different. And so really, I when I went to grad school and I, I was fully I want I wanted to become a professor. But once I got there, there's just a sense and you'll you'll see this after you work on Wall Street. There's just kind of a and a love for the practical application of these things. You're just you're just getting your hands a little bit dirty. That I, and I missed. And so I was so I just kind of wanted to go into industry. And I knew that even if I did become a professor, sports was something I was really going to try and maybe get into consulting or something like that. Really, I was so fortunate. I went to the MIT Sports Analytics Conference with a friend, uh, Nate Sellen, Princeton classmate, um, one of my, my closest friends to this day. And, you know, he was like, hey, let's go. Let's go for fun. I don't know if you really actually want to pursue this. but Let's go for fun. So we went, you know, back then it was probably a little less crowded. So you could walk up to your favorite GM or your favorite front office person and have conversations. And so we did that. Um, I had a friend uh, that knew somebody at the 49ers and they're like, Hey, you should talk to this guy, Quasey. Uh, and so I went, I spoke with him, uh, Brian Hampton, uh, again, who hired me. You talk about people who paved the way for you and he gave him my first opportunity in the NFL. Um, so he's the first person I met. It's funny that I was at Stanford probably 10 minutes down the road from them, but I went all the way to Boston to meet him for the first time. But again, uh, grateful that how that turned out. And again, I never thought it would end up here. I won't I won't sit here and, and, and lie and say that. Yeah. And it's funny because, again, from just exactly what you're saying, you never know how things are going to work out. You wouldn't believe the amount of times I've heard that from adults who are like just this very chance encounter. I just went there on a whim or didn't really mean to. And it just ended up changing the trajectory of my life. And so that's just one thing that I'm another reason for me to always be open minded about approaching people and just not really closing off any doors because you never you never know where, where things might lead you. Such a great. Yeah, man, that's great wisdom. I, and honestly, that first chance. But I wasn't great at networking and things like that really until later, until I you know, really I ended up meeting uh, Andrew Barry uh, with Cleveland. That was something that I had to kind of tell myself to get better at, um, you know, and just really I'm just I'm, I can be a little introverted. And I also, you know, want to always be genuine in my interactions. And a lot of times with those interactions, we both know there's this hidden thing that I haven't I want some things from you right yeah. and I never wanted to be that way and that's something that I had to be mindful of but I you you having that wisdom at this age is going to take you a long way and that was a, a perfect transition you're 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 great at segueing into my next <laughs> questions because I was I was going to ask about the encounter I was a point guard <laughs> man that's, that's, that's what I do love that with the, the encounter with Andrew Barry I read this article and it said you met him at the 
uh, combine in 2019 and how you kind of like you just said you're a little bit introverted you're not usually the type to walk up to a person and strike up a conversation what was it about him when you saw him that you were like okay i'm gonna put myself out there a little more than i usually do and strike up this conversation you know like i said i had you know i'd been at the 49ers by then for a few years and you know my first few years there were there were challenges you know there were times where you didn't feel like your voice was heard and, and things like that. And, but that, you know, that happens at every company for every person that's passionate and really wants to, to, to help. And so by then John Lynch and Kyle Shannon had been hired and everything had changed. And I'd been way more involved, but some part of me always thought back to those early days and wanting to give your career just potential options and know that, you know, you maybe should meet people and get yourself out there just to, because you never know. And so I had read an article about Andrew, uh, you know, Harvard computer science, just, you know, golly, you think you're special. And then you see somebody else who just, you know, an incredible human vice president at, you know, in his twenties. And so just knew, knew the name. And honestly, I didn't really even nobody look like, but I, we, everybody at the combine wears around these lanyards. And so I saw the name Barry and just was like, Oh, that's Andrew Barry. Let me just strike up a conversation with him. Um, and, you know, we hit it off uh, right away and he took me up. Uh, I think he was he had just started working with the Eagles. We walked up there, talked with him, talked with Howie. Uh, great conversation. We stayed in touch. And, you know, obviously uh, the rest is history. Yeah. And so before the little in between, before you land the job as the Vikings GM, what were you able to learn in your time with the Browns that you think put you on the radar of other teams to then eventually land the job as GM? I mean, I can't speak to what put me on the radar because ultimately you're just humble that people think, you know, think that highly of you to give you this job. I can tell you what I learned in that job, though. You know, it's hard when as you go up in organizations, it's the same, same, the same thing will happen to you. You rise for a reason that you're, you're, you're good at doing something. But the further you go up, you actually get further from the thing that got you to where you're going. You stop doing and you start leading and managing. And so I had to really go from I used to sit in a room for three months and code. Right. And, and get ready for the draft and, and do things like that. And then I go to Cleveland and that is not my job. I was like, wait, no, no, no. Where's Python? Like, right, <laughs> you know, like and, and he's like, no, that's not going to be you. He forced me to kind of step out of my shell and, hey, take take all those things you do when you do all those things and apply it to now running uh, groups and organizations and leading people. And that's really what I learned the most there, that the preparation for the GM job one of the people realizes like, we're not playing fantasy football here. There's, there's not a, I'm not sitting here what just watching film and thinking of trades. You're running a, a business. You're handling people's lives. You're leading, you're managing. Um, and so that's a big part of the job. And that's probably the most thing I learned. And he very detailed every day. And again, you're so grateful for the mentors you have in your life. Uh, you know, he's calling me in my office, in his office. Hey, Quace, if you're going to be a GM in six, what would you do here? And it's like, you know, it's Tuesday. You know, say, hey, Andrew, let me let me you know, relax. Can I, yeah, can I have my tea. You know, like, let me have my green tea without a without a you know having this existential crisis with you. But like, he 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 saw this moment probably before I did. You know, and uh, again, eternally grateful. He's always he's always going to be a member of the family. We talk all the time. Uh, just you know, so fortunate, and not just him. You know, Glenn Cook. I, I've met so many talented people there that have really made me uh, who I am, uh, along with the people at the 49ers. And again, just forever grateful.
And so you just spoke to the level of preparation necessary to go into being a GM, specifically with the NFL draft, which is a, a, a chance every year to really just retool your team, just bring in some new pieces. How cool would you say it is to be able to make dreams come true in such a tangible manner when you're giving them that phone call that here you you are being signed to an NFL team? <laughs> it's, it's awesome, man. I, I can't even I can't even tell you, you know, I tell people all the time, some of the my, my fondest memories in this profession will be the wins. And, you know, obviously I was fortunate enough to go to a Super Bowl and, you know, be in an NFC championship, but I also, I got to teach player education. And one of the first guys in my class retired my, one of my first days in Cleveland. And I was talking to an agent. I didn't know who this agent was. And I see in the background that player's Jersey. And I say, Hey, how do you know that guy? He's like, Oh, he's my agent. He just retired. He took care of his, all his money. He's good. And when I tell you like, I don't know that I had, you know, granted, I, you know, I, I talked to those guys four times a year or whatever, but like the 1% that I might've helped this guy get to that point in his life where he's financially secure was like so heartwarming and so great for me. So you talk about other memories. And so being able to call somebody and say, Hey, all those two days, all those weightlifting sessions, all those times where people told you, you weren't going to make it. How many players, you know, when they're six years old, write that letter. We see those stories when they make it. A lot of other people who wrote that same thing on the on paper, they just didn't get to make it. So to really, to be the other end of that phone call, and honestly, you don't appreciate when you're making a call. I don't know that people realize this. It's very silent on the other end of the phone. Like, I think because everybody, you're like shushing everybody or, or something. And then I've got people looking at me in the draft room. So you're a little, this is a very, you know, it's not, it's not as, uh, you know, it's, it's a little different than people think, but I got to go back after and watch some of their videos on Instagram. So Brian Asimov, who's, you know, from the same place that I am and watching the emotion and the tears and the family. And that's when it really hits you home. Um, how incredible a moment that must be for them. And, and, and so proud. And, and honestly, their journey is just starting and we're, we're excited to get back to work. Yeah, and I love it because the Vikings actually put the behind the scenes of the draft, the prep for the draft online. And so I was watching the video on YouTube and it's exactly what you described where you're on the phone, but everyone's kind of there just looking at you. And then on the other end, the player has their own thing going on. So yeah, it's definitely a very unique situation that, that happens. And so just with the last few questions that I have here, I just want to ask about a specific player, Justin Jefferson, one of the most exciting players in the league. How excited are you to have a player like that on the roster, especially coming off Pro Bowls in his first two years i mean from a talent perspective it's obvious right he makes people like him and when i when i got the job here i texted all my my the players that i'm still close with in san francisco and cleveland i said thanks because right they're the reason i'm here i'm not i'm not we're not we're not doing rocket science here you get great players and they make you look smart uh, but having somebody like him from a talent perspective that that speaks for itself but i don't know what people think people realize when you're around greatness like that on a daily basis it's humbling not because he's so great it just the, the, the work he puts in on a daily basis to be that great. It's not just touchdowns on Sunday. It's every rep and individual. It's like the level of detail, the level of passion he puts into it. It's so inspiring. It makes you want to be better, right? Because that guy's incredible at his craft and the commitment he's putting into it. Well, let me go in this office and, and get a little better at what I'm doing. Let me, let me, let me push a little harder in my workout. It's so inspiring to be around. And, uh, you know, again, fortunate to have him, but not just him. We've got a lot of great players on this team that, that push us in that same way. Yeah, and that you, I think exactly what you're saying is iron sharpens iron when you're that, which is another thing I love so much about Princeton is you're around such greatness and you're like, 
I'm not going to be the one who's slacking. I'm I, I need to match everyone else's level. And I also had to bring him up because I'm actually an Eagles fan and I'll never never get over the draft when we skipped right over him and Minnesota just swooped right in after. But that that's besides the point. And then just um, another thing that I saw in one of your uh, interviews online, you mentioned how you have a dream chasers folder where you put some of your biggest dreams and you just go one at a time and check them off. What would you say is the biggest non-football dream that you have in that folder? I mean, not football, but I got to make sure I say the football one is. Oh, yeah, yeah. Go right. If there's people in Minnesota watching, uh, I know what that will mean to this place. Uh, You know, again, I actually grew up an Eagles fan as well. And so when they won, even though I was working for another team, that emotion, I understand what that that means to bring that for the first time to a fan base. And nothing would make me happier uh, than to do that here. So first and foremost, let me say that. But outside of football, you know, I try and be general about it but I've always had this sense since I was young that we're sort of supposed to like leave this world a little bit better than we received it Um, and I don't know what that means specifically always but just trying to I don't know have have conversations you know try to help the people that maybe don't have the same advantages that I've had or other people have just you know do whatever we can to help other people. Uh, that's, that's really what I want to do. And that's general. And there's some specific things in there. Um, but, you know, really just that, that's it. Um, yeah. Maybe I'm a dream. I think there's like the dream, a little bit of a, you know, wistful dreamer in, in me or whatever, but I think there's so much we can do to make this world great for ourselves, for others and, and leave it in a great place for the generation that comes behind us. And that is the perfect place to put a pin on this wonderful conversation. Kwesi, thank you so much for taking the time out to come on on my podcast. Thanks for having me, man. Best of luck uh, as you start uh, your your journey in New York City. And uh, yeah, man, I'll be rooting for you. Thank you so much. And I'll be rooting for you too, except week three this year when you play the Eagles. (laughs) (laughs) All right. Thank you so much. This has been another episode of Go With The Flow. Thank you for listening. (laughs) 